So without a doubt, playing time and player roles is the most common issue at all levels in sports. And without a doubt, players and even parents are irrational, they're biased, and they're probably incorrect in their argument that they should be playing more. <laughs> While we may not make the right decision every time in regards to playing time and roles, we're probably still more right than the critics or the complainers. And yet while we may be right, and while we may have done a lot of things to show our players that we value them and that we care about them, if they don't feel valued, if they don't feel cared about, or if they don't understand our decision, then we have to ask ourselves, what have we done that might have contributed to this issue? We can get defensive or deflect the feedback, but at the end of the day, we need to ask, do we want to be right or do we want to be successful? Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm JP Nurbin, joined by my friend and co-host, Nate Sanderson. This podcast is about providing practical help for coaches to become better leaders and build better cultures. What I love about the community of coaches that we formed, largely from the listeners of this podcast, is that we get to work with and support coaches who aren't about blaming and complaining about athletes today or the sporting culture. They're more focused on finding solutions. If you want the notes to today's episode, be sure to subscribe at tocculture.com to our weekly newsletter where we'll send you the notes to each and every episode. Now, let's get into Nate Nice conversation today. So Nate, without a doubt, one of the most talked about things in sports and in coaching is this challenge around playing time, playing time and roles. And you know, we've, we've had a lot of conversations with coaches and our work with them over the last few years. And in these conversations, what I've realized is that there are really a handful of mistakes that we make as coaches that lead to a lot of additional challenges for us down the line. And at the end of the day, it would be great if we lived in this world where we could make decisions and the players and the parents all trusted our decisions and said, hey, coach is just doing what is best for the team. And and, and then that would be it. You know, like that's all we had to do is go out and make the right decision. But the reality is oftentimes when players or even their parents don't know how we make decisions or why we made that decision, they create a story in their head. And that story is often not the truth. And it's oftentimes one that coach doesn't like me, coach is a jerk, coach is, you know, an idiot, right? Is the story that they start telling themselves and potentially other people. And it doesn't help too when, you know, oftentimes the culture around sports is friends and family members love to feed and nurture that narrative uh, because they don't want their individual, their child um, to have to deal with some hard truths, which is that they're, they may not be good enough or whatever the reason is. So there is this, you know, in, in today's culture, this lack of maybe respect or just automatic trust within the coach. And, and what we've seen is that we as coaches, um, while it would be great to live in that idealistic world, that utopia, it's just not going to be the case. And so if we can do a few things on our end, more upstream, more proactive ways to communicate um, how we decide playing time and communicate some of our decisions, it can not only save us a lot of time on the back end downstream, but it's going to help players to buy in more to what we're doing as a coach and to feel valued, which is, I think, which I think is what all of us want at the end of the day. Well, I know JP, we're going to look at this from a couple of different angles here, but I think at the end of the day, 
you know, it comes down to a coach's ability to understand even for themselves and for their staff, how are we making decisions when it comes to team assignments or playing time or who's starting and who's sitting? You know, do we have a, a clear methodology or a clear framework with which we're using to be able to guide our decisions? But more importantly, or as importantly, once we've once we have that established, we understand, OK, these are the things that we're evaluating. These are the standards for performance. Now that gives us a little bit more clarity to be able to communicate those things specifically with players or with parents or with administrators if you're called in to have to justify some of your decisions. Yeah, Nate, you're exactly right. I think one question I will often ask coaching staffs when I'm doing you know, some consulting work or a workshop for them is I'll ask them to write down each coach on that staff. How do you decide playing time? And always the answer is very, very different. And everyone on that staff should be able to communicate, well, this is, you know, our process and it should be clear. So I'd encourage coaches, you know, if you can go to your assistants right now today and ask them, hey, how do we decide playing time here? Do you all have the same answer or a very similar process outlined in that answer? That'd be one thing. The other mistake that I see in this, you know, determining playing time and how we communicate, how we determine it. And this is something I was very, 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 very guilty of is that we say as coaches and leaders that we value hard work, we value attitude, we value selflessness, and that's what matters here. And then what people hear is like, oh, if coach values that, then that's who will get to play. It will be the hardest worker. It'll be the most selfless individual. It'll be the person that shows up to all the off-season stuff. But at the end of the day, that's not how most of us decide playing time. You know, most of us, you know, we actually are willing to let the culture slide at times in the heat of the season when it comes time to win a game, right? Like, it's just natural that that happens. Now, we've talked about before the podcast, idealistically, we're in a place where we set a minimum standard that our players have to meet to be eligible to play is, is kind of the approach that, you know, me and you try to take. And then after that, it's, you know, who gives us the best chance to win? But however we communicate that, I just feel like there's a lot of issues in coaches' communication with players and parents saying, these are our values, this is what's important to us. But then if they were to look at who plays on Friday night, it's not the hardest worker, it's not the people that embody the culture the most. And so what happens is people get frustrated, they tell us that we're a fraud, and trust breaks down. I think what you're describing there, JP, is that we establish our cultural standards and they don't necessarily qualify you to get playing time, but they can disqualify you if you aren't meeting them. And I think that's sometimes hard for parents and players to, to understand. You know, I, I know for us this year, our circumstances are a little bit different than they were last year. I think we have more kids that can contribute in our rotation. We're likely to play eight or nine kids this year instead of six or seven like we did last year. And so one of the things that we've tried to be deliberate about when it comes to communicating or places where communication can break down is, what does that mean if we play eight or nine kids instead of seven? Well, it means that our starters, instead of playing 30 minutes a night, are probably going to play 26 to 28. It means that eight and nine coming into the game, they're probably not playing eight to 10 minutes. Their turns might be shorter or they might get a first half turn and somebody else might get a second half turn. That wasn't the case last year. Last year, our rotation was like clockwork. You know, we just A for B, B for C. We just rotated in based on the time and there wasn't a lot of question to it. And so, you know, it may be a little bit more by feel this year. And I think that's a phrase sometimes that can get coaches in trouble too. 
you know, we say, well, I don't script out substitutions because I just want to get a feel for the game. Certainly there's room for that, but a player has no idea what you're feeling. <laughs> you know, a player might hear that phrase and say, well, if coach gets mad at me, then that probably means he's not feeling like playing me anymore, you know? And so maybe that makes them more afraid when they're out on the floor. Maybe it makes them more confused because they're not really sure what makes you feel good about them being in or, or not. Right. And so, you know, one of the things we've done JP this year, just to try to clarify a little bit, what are we looking for when it comes to performance is basically giving our kids like, here's the four categories in a basketball context. You know, can you handle the ball? Can you do your job on defense? Can you put pressure on the rim? Can you score when you get open shots? Like, and then we just evaluate them. You're either hurting us, you're a negative, you're neutral where you're doing your job or you're positive where there's something that you're adding to the mix, you know, as a, as a disruptive defender is different than just doing your job, for example. And so in our first round of one-on-ones, we went through those four categories with every player. And obviously, you know, when we're trying to build the right team, we put this up on the board and we're like, we're trying to put as many pluses on the floor as we can at one time and as few negatives. And we think that's the path for us to move forward. So it's created a little bit of language for us to talk to players about what they add, where they potentially could hurt us, what their particular skill set is that's different from somebody else um, so that they're hopefully understanding what's expected of their job, even if it's different from someone else's job. Yeah, I love how intentional you are in trying to communicate how not only decisions are made, but how they've changed. And it makes me think, you know, it's an example in the corporate world. So I think I've shared this before, but my wife works at Google and, and she recently had to attend like a three hour webinar workshop for all the managers. And what they wanted them to understand was how do we do pay structure, bonuses, promotions, right? And then how do you communicate that to the people underneath you? So I share this because I think sometimes coaches go, oh, well, I should I have to communicate this? Well, this is the reality, reality right? Like and they understand within that culture that, you know, employees want to know why they're not getting the bonus they got last year, right? They want to know why, you know, why so-and-so is getting paid here or, you know, they, they, we have to understand why. And I always come back to playing time. Uh, it's like the currency of sports, right? It's like, you know, they're always going to be comparing why is, you know, she getting paid more than I am, you know, or why am I not getting paid, you know, getting the same boost in pay that I got last year. You just have to be able to communicate that to employees. It just makes sense. You'd have to communicate that within a, in a team setting as well. I think all of that is great. And that analogy makes perfect sense. You know, when you think about playing time as the reward system, right. For the things that we value, both in terms of culture and performance, but here's the other thing about playing time. No, this episode isn't going to be just about playing time. But one of the, the truths that I share with my team, especially early in the year, is there are some times where I really don't know what's going to happen in the game. And our first game, we opened the season on Saturday night just a couple nights ago, was a great example of this. Ten minutes before we're ready to start our varsity warmup, our best scorer starts throwing up all over the place and has to go home. And so now all of a sudden... You know, we had this nice talk earlier in the day about here's rotations and here's who's going to sub for who. And this is how we're going to work it out. And all that's blown to hell when we started because, you know, we got to find a way to fill 28 minutes here for our best shooter. And so, you know, I was just really upfront with the team, like literally before we walked out on the court for warmups is I don't know for sure how this is going to go. So I just need, you know, some grace and I need everybody to be ready, you know, to go in and do your job, whatever. And it worked out like it worked out fine. But the other thing that, 
we've tried to communicate, and this is a little bit unique this year to our team, is that you know we have two post players that are both capable of having really great nights and also capable of getting themselves into foul trouble or you know shying away from contact. You know, there's some vulnerabilities there for both of them, right? So one will start, the other one's going to play a lot of minutes. But I've told them, you know, that whenever we're performing at our best, if you're on the floor when that's happening, your turn might end up being longer because we're just going to, we're going to go with what's working. Right. And so the the second post last night, we're three and a half minutes left in the game. We're up by four or five, whatever, you know, rebounding becomes essential. And she pulls down three huge boards, you know, in massive traffic at the defensive end. We go on to win the game by seven. Maybe our starting post could have done the same thing. It's very likely that she could have, but we saw that Chloe was doing the job. And therefore we just left her in the job, even though normally she would have come out at that moment. So we'll go back now and backfill a little bit here in our next team meeting and say, listen, here's how we were thinking through the game at this point. At this point, we made a couple of these substitutions. So players understand it goes all the way back to what you're talking about there with the bonus system of if you're doing your job, if you're on the floor and there's a team that's playing really well, we're probably going to let it ride in that combination. That might not be the same from one night to another, but I legitimately don't necessarily always know what's going to happen in the context of the game either. And so we can't just predict always JP, you're going to play this many minutes and always come out at this particular time because it does vary night to night. Let me ask you a question, Nate, because I think this is, you know, really good intentional stuff, but sometimes people might be thinking, Oh my gosh, that seems like a lot of work. Like you said, you're going to have a conversation to follow up on that. Is that a lengthy conversation or is it just a quick chat before you get into some film? Yeah, so for us, we have some time set aside on Tuesday after practice just to go through a few things, 15, 20 clips at the most on, you know, from our game on Saturday. But I'm going to talk about, you know, this is how we changed the lineup. This is when we made these substitutions. So we had one guard that played in the first half, one guard that played in the second half. Again, I'll talk about the post situation I just described there so that they can understand how I was thinking through the game. And we had this happen last year with a similar situation where I made a substitution that didn't make sense at the time. And in our next team meeting, I kind of went back and said, here's what I was thinking. Now, looking back at it, I probably would have done this differently, but I only had literally seven seconds on the film to decide what we were going to do. And this is what, you know, came to mind, or this is what was in my ear from an assistant coach. And I agreed with it. And that's what we did. So I just think when there are things that maybe in the moment don't make sense to players and you kind of look at their body language or, you know, read their mood after the game a little bit, it's probably because they don't understand not necessarily just because they don't agree. And I think that's a nuance maybe that I haven't always embraced is I can help with understanding. The agreement piece is still on them, but if I haven't explained things well enough or communicated well enough, it's hard for them to get to that place where then they can decide, I agree with this coach or this makes sense, or no, I still wouldn't do it this way if I was the coach. You know, players sometimes may think that as well. Yeah, and if we can help them understand, I think we have a better chance of them actually buying in to what we're asking them to do uh, and to trusting us, you know, and I think hopefully you're this, this legwork you're doing at the start of the season establishes the trust that you don't have to maybe un- unpack every decision you make in two months time. And let me just piggyback one more thing on that too, JP, is that I have started to phrase our in-game decision-making both with parents and with players as describing ourselves as educated guessers. Do I know that, you know, one guard's going to come in and go for five and the other one's going to go one for one with no turnovers and assist in the game before it happens? I have no idea, right? Like I'm, I'm guessing based on data and what we've seen, but 
I can guess wrong just like anybody else, or my information that I'm guessing from can be limited for all kinds of reasons. And so again, that's humanizing me as a coach a little bit, but I'm also trying to explain, look, this, this shit isn't easy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's hard to predict sometimes what's going to happen. And we're, we're literally just trying to make the best guess, the best decision that we can with whatever the information is that we have at the time. Yeah. And I think this kind of leads us into our next thing, which is roles, you know, and, and those role conversations, which obviously roles impact, you know, a player's playing time, their minutes, and it also impacts what we expect with them, you know, on the court or on the field and off the field, right? And off the court. So I think one of the biggest, you know, issues we see around, you know, or traps that coaches fall into is just simply not actually talking about roles at all, right? I know that for me as a coach, I mean, now the level of intentionality that we're working with coaches to have these conversations, I mean, I was doing none of that when I was initially, I just made my decisions. I told players, buy into what we're doing. You know, like you, you might, if a player is disgruntled, you might just say, hey man, you just gotta, you know, go make players better. Like you just never had these conversations that coaches are are doing it. And, and one of the biggest things, and, and it's obviously it's in the book, the culture system, I talk about it is, is we've had a lot of coaches now say, Hey, this is a conversation. That's not just once a year, but we need to have consistent conversations throughout the year. And it's not always just about the role, but it's these player development plans where we're asking players to identify their goals individually for the season and for the team. And we're asking them, you know, where, the, where they see themselves uh, and what they can do you know, moving forward to achieve those goals. But we're also, after they've shared, we're offering our perspective and we're offering our support uh, to help them to make those improvements. And by just taking time to share our perspective uh, on where we see them, if that's not in line with where they see themselves, right? If there's a misalignment there. And then also on the things that we'd like to see them do um, to start to move towards their goals, Right, just having these conversations and offering our support and coaching them, coaching them on these changes they need to make, this in and of itself helps every player, one through 12, one through 20, one through whatever you've got, helps every player feel more valued. Because even if they're the bottom on your, your depth chart and they're getting you know, zero minutes most games, they still feel like coach is investing in me. He's still invested in what's important to me. And he's or she's trying to help me to, you know, to achieve those things. When it comes, JP, to that, that role definition, you know, we could talk for days about things here that we would recommend, but I'll tell you one that came up in a conversation with one of our coaches here last week, and that is not just explaining, all right, JP, here's your role. This is your job. This is what's expected of you, offense, defense, et cetera. But then also trying to explain how it fits with everything else that's going on. You know, in other words, one of the ways that we do this is we go back through our game. So again, I mentioned we'll take 15, 20 clips from our game on Saturday, and we'll talk about how uh, there's a specific possession. I know I'm a basketball romantic, so I apologize for trying to explain this without video, but we have been working on players trying to cut back door when they're denied to keep our offense flowing. And so we had a kid that was dribbled at, overplayed, made a perfect backdoor cut, didn't get the ball, ran to the opposite corner, which opened up you know, the middle of the floor, the girl drives it and then finds that girl in the corner. She hits a wide open three. And if you look at the sequence, the most mundane part of that was Aaron following the rule of if you're overplayed, get the hell out of the way, backdoor cut, which she did. And then that creates opportunity for the dominoes to start falling from there. 
Most people would watch that and just say, well, it was the drive. It was the drive coach that created the opportunity. It wasn't. It was her doing this simple little job right here. And I think that's analogous to all kinds of things, right? Like that can be your role as a teammate, your role as a team captain. It can be your role, you know, in the performance of what's going on in the floor. But the more you can explain and show examples of how when JP does his job and, you know, Nate does his job, look at what happens and how those things work together to make all of us better. And I know that probably sounds like, Jeez, I don't know if I have time to go through and, you know, and find all those kinds of things. But if you could do that once or twice a week, just showing how every job works together seamlessly, I think that leads players to buy into and understand when I just do my job and JP does his job, we're more likely to be successful. I, I love that. And I think, too, of like, you know, to keep going with a basketball example, if you're doing scout film, you know, on, on, our, on the team that you have coming up, and let's say that the team plays a really high pressure defense. And you're talking about that. And that's a great opportunity to then turn to some of those reserve players that are more practice players. Like, hey, you know, we haven't faced a defense like this today. We're really going to need you guys to bring a lot of energy to, to mimic the energy that they're, we're going to face tomorrow, right? And it's instantly tying even to a player that's not playing competitive minutes, but it's tying up their value to, to push, you know, your starters or your main, you know, players, right? I think the more we can do that before the game, as well as come back to it, like, hey, we were really ready for that pressure tonight. You got to give it up for the, you know, some of the players yesterday that came in. They didn't play tonight, but they prepared us for that moment. The more that we can celebrate the role of individuals that maybe don't play as much or they don't have all these stats, you know, that they can, you know, get posted to social media and then people, you know, go crazy about like that, the more we can celebrate that value, I think it helps players to see the value in their role because i think so often back to your point is you know we say hey you know we need you to there to push us you know like you still have, you're still valuable you're still important to the team but they only see value based upon the amount of minutes they have and the points they score the goals they score right those stats because that's what all that's what that's what they've been taught and so if we can't help them to find the value in their role otherwise they'll never see that well, I think JP, that's so important and it can be done in lots of different ways. You know, you can amplify the praise for your scout team in your weekly email. You know, you can pull a clip from a practice of them running a set play, you know, of the, your opponents and how you guarded it, you know, just whether it's in film or whatever to celebrate them giving the look and us not giving up the points. You know, when it comes to again, baseline out of bounds is one where, you know, a scout team is really beneficial when you're working on baseline out of bounds, defense and basketball. If your scout team runs, all four of those plays correctly and you stop them all in practice and then you give up zero points the next day, praising to the rooftops, the scout team's role in that, you know, it goes a long, long way in continuing to value them, not just internally or interpersonally, but also, you know, outside of the program with those that are looking for, you know, contributions and looking to celebrate everybody on the team. Now, there's some common traps that we see in these role conversations, because a lot more, it's a lot more common, I think, for coaches to actually have these one-on-ones with players um, where they sit down and say, hey, this is where we see where you're at. And, and I, I've come across a few mistakes that we make as coaches. I've made these before. And oftentimes in these conversations, one of the biggest mistakes that we make is we give them hope when honestly there isn't any. You know, we don't want to be like, really definitive in the fact that they're never going to play. But in our head, we know there's really no chance that they're going to jump over four players, you know, and it, 
unless there's some miracle or something, uh, you know, exceptional happens. But we always, you know, I, I see as coaches and I, I've done this before too. It's like, Hey, well, currently I don't see you in the competitive, you know, playing some competitive minutes. I don't, I don't see that. It doesn't mean that it can't change, but this is, but you know, it probably won't change. And so what remains in their mind is this individual goal that I want to get some real game minutes this year, right? That goal remains in their mind. And so their experience hinges oftentimes on achieving that goal. When really we need to be giving them the truth, which will be hard for them and emotional. I've had some coaches do this last week. And they give them the truth. And when you say, okay, that doesn't mean that you can't provide value. It doesn't mean you can't have a great, great experience this team. So if you can't play competitive minutes, and that's one of your goals this, this year, what, you know, what would make this experience still positive for you? How, you know, what would be a goal that you would have for yourself this season, other than that goal, obviously. So you're trying to challenge them to think, you know, and, and to essentially set some sort of new goal so that their experience isn't hinged on that goal itself. I think one of the phrases, JP, we've used in those conversations, especially early in the year, is here's where you're at right now. Okay. So, JP, if you're at number 10 and we're playing eight and a half, this is where you are right now. This is where you're most likely to contribute if two of our players start throwing up right before warmups instead of one, you know, or where you would, where you would most likely to be stubbed in offense, defense, press break, whatever it might be. And I think, you know, a way to frame that same question that you're asking right there is if this didn't change throughout the season and, and this ended up being where you were at, you know, all the way through, what can you do to bring value in this role? Or, you know, the same kind of questions you're asking there. So it does leave the door open a little bit for, the fact that, okay, we're just acknowledging this is where you are. It could change. If it doesn't change, then let's figure out what's going to make this most rewarding for you. I think what can be hardest about that conversation is that a player says, well, coach, what do I have to do to get into the rotation? In your mind, you're thinking, well, don't turn it over, make shots and do your job on defense. But you're also thinking that you have to do that better than the person in front of you, who's also trying to get better as the season goes along. Whereas that player that I just said, well, you just got to handle the ball a little bit better, make a few more shots, is just thinking that's all I have to do as though it was in a vacuum. And if I get better as a ball handler, then coach is going to find time for me to play. But it's always in comparison with those that are in front of you. And I'm going to be honest with you, JP, I haven't found the perfect way to be able to articulate that yet um, with our team or with our parents, other than to frame it around this idea that we're always competing, you know, we're always competing for spots. You're always trying to catch the person in front of you, but you have to remember they're trying to run away from you just as fast as you're trying to catch up to them, you know, and that's what makes it difficult for um, players that are at the end of the, you know, it reserves to be able to catch people that are in front of them because we're all trying to get better. Absolutely. I mean, and this is, go, let's go back to the business world and a metaphor that or analogy that I used earlier, you know, my wife's learned this more and more recently. You want a promotion into the next level, some sort of leadership position. Well, it's not there <laughs> as long as someone's currently in that role, you know, like, and, and oftentimes you can do everything perfectly, but until that position opens up, you will remain in that role. Like you just can't promote, you know, willy nilly out there. And JP, if I could just follow that up really quickly, this is another thing that's hard for players to understand. If I'm number nine and my job is to go in and play the top of the zone and not turn it over and make an open shot, that's a different job than being number five. 
Number five may have to handle the ball in the press. They may have to guard the best player. They may have to have more rebounding responsibilities. So, so this is really hard for players and parents to understand is that just because you're good at being number nine or number eight or the first guard off the bench, that doesn't mean that you're going to be great at the next job you're promoted to because the responsibilities are greater. You don't have to just demonstrate you can do your current job. You have to demonstrate that you can do JP's job who's in front of you better than he can in order to take that spot. And I, again, that's just a total foreign way of thinking when it comes to what players are looking for or how they're justifying in their mind what a promotion should look like. Now, just another slight little recommendation for coaches. I think one of the complaints that we get back in feedback, when we do a lot of feedback uh, within teams, you know, and you get the players um, are frustrated by the fact that, well, coach pulls me out of the game or I get subbed out, you know, when I make the smallest mistake or they don't even go to the game, but it's like, well, so-and-so can, you know, turn the ball over or they can make all these mistakes and, and there's, and they can get away with it, you know, and you don't, you don't seem to get on them about it. And what we try to encourage coaches is, is to communicate the value equation, the competitive value equation, right? And essentially is, you know, how you help the team impacts how much you can actually hurt the team, right? If you have a huge upside, if you're dropping 30 points a game, you shoot 50% from three, you know, you can take a few bad shots. You can turn the ball over a few times because you know, we can, you know, you're still really bringing a lot of competitive value on the court, but if you don't have a lot of upside, you're not great at scoring, you're, you know, you know, you, you don't, you're not a great defender or you're not really big and be able to rebound the ball, right. Then you really can't go on there and make a lot of mistakes, right. So your role is different, right. And your expectations are different. And so, yeah, if you're doing a little few things like this, you're really hurting the team and you're not helping us to win. And so that value equation of how much you help the team and how much you hurt the team that impacts and players need to understand that because the standard is different based upon your ability to impact the game when you're on the field or on the court. Well, and I think to push on that a little bit further too, going back to our four categories, I can't put four shooters on the floor with nobody that can put pressure on the rim or defend. So, you know, it isn't, it isn't like every position requires the same thing either. So we've had conversations about how, you know, having a low post player that can draw a double team makes our shooters that much better than if we were playing five guards with no penetrators, you know, and then we're all overplayed and we're in big trouble, mister. Right. So all, all that stuff is situational based on the context of your game. But I just think the more we sprinkle in here and there, how we think through some of those things, the more it helps players to at least be able to see through our, our glasses a little bit to understand how some of those decisions are made. Now, the last area, you know, we, we're going to focus on is really, you know, not so much around the roles, but around in-game decision-making and how we're communicating that. I, there's two big things that I've done poorly as a coach that have led to emotional players in the locker room before the game, on the sidelines before the game, and leads to more of those like, you know, puppy dog faces looking up at you on the bench when you turn around, like, you know, looking to see who you're going to put into, into the game, right? Because players are like hoping that this is their moment to go in. Um, the first thing is we make a change to our lineup without communicating that, you know, before the game. And that can really throw a player off because if they're a starter and all of a sudden they're dropped from the starting lineup and they don't know why, they're going to be asking why. And oftentimes 
just the natural instinct for us as humans is to go to the worst case scenario, which is coach hates me or I did something wrong, right? And it could be you just made a change because of matchups or, or, or whatever. It could be a lot of reasons you make that change. Okay, so we don't communicate that or we don't communicate it with enough time in advance. Like we communicate in the locker room or in the warmups. The more time that we give players the, in that communication, the more of an opportunity we're giving them to kind of reset and come in and, and fill in the role that they're expected that, that, that evening, you know, or, you know, that game. And I, I've seen this so often. I even saw it a few years ago. I remember I had a conversation with a player, you know, probably 36 hours before the game and they didn't take it well, but they said later after the game, they said, Hey, I appreciate you letting me know because I was able to kind of get myself, my mind right. And just really, really focus on doing the best job with whatever minutes I got. You know, so communicating on the front end is really important. Now, the other big issue that I see, you know, a trap that I see coaches fall into here is substitutions. Now, I don't think we can do this for every single substitution that we make in a game, but the more that we can communicate why a player is coming out, the better. Because once again, when we pull a player out of the game, especially if it's, you know, quick, sudden, or out of the ordinary rotation, their mind is going to go, well, why did coach sum me out of the game, right? Now, there's really four main reasons I think that in basketball, for instance, and I know many other sports would share similar uh, reasons for subs, that there's only four really big reasons that, that I would sub a player out. One is behavior. They're back talking to refs or lashing out on teammates, right? Performance, they're just not playing well, right? They're having an off night. Okay, we got to get them out a little bit early. The other one would be rotational. You know, it's just like, hey, they were only going in to give some so-and-so a bit of a breather or, you know, to kind of recover. Um, and then the last, you know, might be situational. You know, situations occur that are like injuries or, you know, matchups, you know, just things within the context of the game have nothing maybe even to do with that player, but that result in us needing to sub someone out. And so the more that we or even our assistants, you know, can have players when they come off, off, you know, off the court or off the field, you know, come over to a coach and just say, Hey, this is, this is why you came out and actually have another conver you know, conversation around, you know, what'd you see out there? You know, how'd you feel about your play and kind of review their play. Like it doesn't need to be this all about why they came out, but just sharing with them that helps them to not tell that story in their head or trying to figure out, well, why did coach pull me out? They know it. And now they can be intentional in their reflection and kind of resetting so that when they go back in the game, if they do go back in the game, they can be at their best and they're not playing from a place of fear. As we get ready to wrap up here, you know, I want to circle back, JP, all the way to where we started, you know, and you talked a little bit at the opener here about the importance of investing and front loading in some of these conversations before, you know, these situations arise, whether it's substitutions or choosing the starting lineup or whose role and who's doing what. I just think the more we can invest up front, the more compound interest we're going to benefit from as the season goes on. This is the way that we framed a lot of these conversations with our whole team early in the season for us this year, because we do have nine players that I feel like could contribute at some point in our rotation. And that's very different from where we were at last year. And I just, I just laid it out for our team before our first game. And I said, listen, Bill Belichick has this great quote. Okay. He says to all the players coming into the program at new England, there's an expectation of this at some point, you're going to have to make a decision between what's best for you or what you want and what's best for the team. 
And we expect that you're going to make the decision for what's best for the team. And we acknowledge that's not always going to be easy. We appreciate that you have ambition to play, to start, to contribute, you know, whatever those goals might be. But everybody at some point is going to experience that, that decision. And if we all make the decision to put the team first, it's the only way we will become our best. And I, I think just, it, again, by acknowledging that it's hard, by acknowledging everybody's going to go through it, you know, I can come back to that in January if a player is really frustrated and we're asking her role to change. I can come back and say, this is the moment for you. I know you want something different, but I think this is what makes our team better. And we're trying to make the best decision for the team. And we need you to do that for us. In order to build momentum where players are going to make that decision, you got to share examples of when other players have done that in the past, right? I mean, in New England, obviously, when they just roll the six Super Bowl rings out on the table and say, this is how we do it around here, or you're not here. That's a little bit different situation. We're not always there. But if you can go back in time and say, look, three years ago, we had a kid whose parents wanted him to be a starter and go division two. And, you know, we just knew that was going to be tough. And this is the role that he wanted to, needed to play on our team for us to be successful. And we had a lot of conversations and he chose, you know what, coach, I'm going to do it. You know, I'm going to excel in this role you're asking me to do. And our team experienced success. You know, the more that you can highlight stories like that, the more likely you to get to buy in. And, and then, you know, once you have one or two players that are making that decision and you're celebrating it, I think it can become contagious and maybe be a mark of the program that gives you even a competitive advantage. Now, if you want a solution, a system of solutions to playing time issues, be sure to check out the playing time culture system. It's a course I offer at tocculture.com and it includes not just great information, but the actual resources to run effective team meetings and activities and one-on-ones around playing time and roles. It comes with a host of documents and other resources. It's helping coaches eliminate this issue around playing time drama. It's helping them to eliminate it from their team. So be sure to check it out at tocculture.com as well as many of our other resources there. Thank you for listening in to the Coaching Culture Podcast.